Well, welcome everybody to Downtown Harbor Church. If it is your first time here, my name is John. I'm the lead pastor. Appreciate you guys coming on out. Today's an exciting day for me. There's a lot of folks here today who are normally our online audience only, and they have made their way down to the state of Florida or from different parts of Florida, and they're here live and direct. So it's great to see them and shake their hands, and they get to be a part of what we are doing in this room. And if you are online, we love that you're watching. We'd love to see you here. Anyway, we are in the midst of this series that we are calling Truly Happy, where we are talking about sadness. And no, I'm kidding. We are just making sure you're paying attention. Half of you aren't. Anyway, so we're talking about happiness. And I got the idea about this series. Uh, I saw an article several weeks ago at this point about a, um, a professor up in Yale University. And she was teaching a course on happiness. And this particular course that she was teaching turned out to be the most popular course at Yale in the last 300 years, which that blew my mind hearing that number. And she was having such success with this course and the content that she was providing that she thought she might bring it to the general public. And she turned into a podcast called The Happiness Lab. And as of the publication of this article, which is now a couple of weeks ago at this point, it had already been downloaded 64 million times. I saw that number and I go, all right, that's a lot of people who are looking for happiness. We got to have a conversation about happiness because God created happiness. He created our capacity to, to feel joy. And so we might want to kind of tune in to listen, to find out what God has to say about sort of being happy and finding happiness. So that's what we've been doing. That's the conversation we have been having. Now, whenever somebody asks me, hey, John, um, how's DHC doing? How's the church doing? Normally it's a, a friend who doesn't go here or a relative or a lot of times it's, it's a prior work associate from a different church and they're just kind of checking in. How are things going? You know, as a church startup, we're not a church plant. We didn't come from another church. We're a church startup. Most church startups don't make it a year and we are now entering, coming into our seventh year. So thank God for that. Right. I mean, thank, yeah, that's great. Thank God. He's really working here. Um, so whatever they ask me, hey, how's DHC doing? I always say, great. We're, do, we're, do, we're, we're, doing, we're doing great because things are going well here. Thank God. But I never stop there. I don't just say, great, thanks so much for asking. I always sort of sprinkle in a little extra just to kind of elicit a particular response. I say, you know, thanks so much for asking. Things are going great. We're having a lot of fun, which always throws people when I say that. They just, the looks in their face because so many people are under the impression or under this belief that, Church and fun don't go together. Like, you, you can go to church to be bored. You can go to church to feel guilty. You can go to church out of obligation to your in-laws. But generally speaking, one does not go to church to have fun or to be happy. And there is this sort of attitude out there in the Christian ethos, if you will, that, that happiness and holiness are mutually exclusive. You can have one or the other, but you, you, you can't have both at the same time. In fact, people believe, if you really want to live a life that is pleasing to God, well, then happiness, it should take a backseat. Maybe you've even heard someone say something like, you know, God doesn't actually want you to be happy. He wants you to be holy, right? Well, not based on the evidence that I've seen. I, I mean, I'm not sure where you're getting that in Scripture, but what we've seen the last few weeks, I'm not sure that's the case. And if the DHC experiment, which this really is an experiment, has taught us anything, it is that you can absolutely be happy and still be a follower of Jesus Christ. You can have a good time. 
You can enjoy life, and you can still love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Yes, God wants you to be holy, and that is our pursuit here. But God also wants us to be happy. Jesus said that he came to give us life and life to the fullest. He, he is the one, Jesus, who claims that he knows more about happiness than anybody else. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to find out what Jesus has to say about happiness. To do this, we are going to take a look at one of Jesus' sermons. It is the greatest sermon he ever gave. It is the greatest sermon that the world has ever heard. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And specifically, we're going to kind of zone in on one little section that's called the Beatitudes. Now, you might know the Beatitudes. You may have heard this term but not really know what that even is. The Beatitudes means the blessings. That's literally what Beatitudes means, the blessings. And what you're going to see are a bunch of little statements, little sound bites, if you will, almost like a list. And they all begin with the word blessed or blessed, as we would pronounce it. And before we dive in, because I got a lot to show you today, before we dive in, I got a quick Greek grammar lesson that I want to give you guys because it will change the way that you see the Beatitudes for the rest of your life. So here it is. Every time you see the word blessed today, and you are going to see it a ton, it's all over the place, you're going to be saying it for the rest of the day. Every time you see the word blessed, that's English word blessed, in the original Greek, meaning when Jesus' disciples were there listening to him teach, every time they heard him say this word that we're calling blessed, the word they wrote down was makarioi. This is the word that they wrote down. And makarioi means happy. Every time Jesus says, blessed are, blessed are those, blessed are they, what he's actually saying is happy are. Happy are those, happy are they. And what we're going to see today is Jesus giving us eight things. There are eight Beatitudes. He's given us eight things that happy people do. To say it another way, if you want to be happy, I know there's like two or three of you in the room that want to be happy, these are the eight things that you should be doing in your life, putting into practice in your life. Now, I got a lot to cover with you. Honestly, you could do eight sermons on the eight Beatitudes. A lot of people do sermon series like that. I'm just going to lump them all together. All right, It's going to be like, you know, eight sermons for the price of one, which means it's going to be like taking a drink of water out of a fire hose, but you're smart people. That's why you come here. You can handle it, right? Even though it's 1030, it's a little early, you can handle this. So let's just jump right in because I got a lot for you today. Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount and begins the Beatitudes by saying, blessed are, happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus used this phrase, poor in spirit, and I wonder if he chose that phrase simply to trip us up, because let's be honest, does anybody have any clue what that even means? I mean, it's, it's not really something we say in our normal day-to-day -day vernacular, but I think he chooses this word poor to trigger us to think about the greatest happiness myth that's out there, and that is that rich people are happy. Money makes you happy, rich people are happy, or there's a counter theory out there that actually, no, it is poor people that are happy. Poverty is seen as a virtue. But what Jesus is saying here is that ha happiness has nothing to do with being rich or poor. It has everything to do with being poor in spirit. Okay? Well, what does that mean? Well, the poor in spirit recognize that they have no spiritual assets. 
Now, this is almost offensive, so stick with me. It's Jesus saying it, not me. But what Jesus is saying here is that happy people recognize that they are spiritually bankrupt. I mean, they, they can't pay back their own debts. Happy people recognize that they are completely dependent upon God for their salvation because they've got nothing to offer him. And many of us believe, and if you're one of these folks, I'm so glad you're here today, but many of us believe that we can make things right with God apart from Jesus Christ. That we can make things right with God with our good works. And so in our minds, we, we sort of think, hey, you know, I'm doing all these good things. I'm a good person. I don't know what your standard is, but we sort of say these things to ourselves. And in my life, I am kind of filling up my spiritual bank account, if you will, with all the good things that I'm doing. And God, when it comes to the end of my life, you're going to look at all the good things that I have done and you're going to accept me based on all the good things that I have done. Isaiah, one of the greatest prophets in all of the Bible, sort of leans into this theory, if you will, or assumption. And he says this. So how can we be saved? Meaning, how can we be made right with God? All of us have become like someone who is unclean. Isaiah is recognizing what we talked about in week one. Every single human being was born into the nation of sin. There is a great divide between us and God, and we are seen as being unclean in the eyes of God without Jesus Christ in our lives. And then he says something, and this is what I wanted to show you. And if you are somebody who thinks that all the good things you, you do in this life will, will make you right with God, Isaiah's about to rock your world. He says all the good things we do are like dirty rags. All those good things, all those good works that you are relying on to, to make it right with God, Isaiah goes, they're, just so you know, they are but filthy rags in God's sight. Outside of Jesus Christ in your life, all the good stuff you do, and it is good stuff and you should do that stuff, but without Jesus Christ, God just looks at his filthy rags. Now the actual word that Isaiah uses here is super gross, so I chose like the PG version, but you should go look it up. It's nasty. I kind of want to say it. No, I won't say it. So I just want to make sure we understand what's being talked about here. God loves you. God loves you so much that he sent his son to die on the cross for you. But Jesus is saying, if you want to be made right with God, the starting point is to recognize that you've got nothing to offer him except your faith in what I have done on that cross for you. Happy people recognize that they are sinners in need of a savior. They are poor in spirit. This is the first beatitude because this is the starting point for a relationship with God. Now, Jesus just cruises through. He keeps going. Blessed are those who mourn. Happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. There's a lot of ways to interpret this, but what really hits me is I, I kind of think about, all right, who, who is a mourner? Well, mourners are those people who are just emotionally connected to death. They're in the moment, they feel it. They don't run from it. They let that wash. They understand it's a part of life. Happy people are those who embrace death and don't run from it. You ever met somebody like that? Somebody who just isn't afraid of dying? They're just, they're just at peace with it. They don't really even think about death that much. That blows my mind whenever I meet those kind of people. You know, as a diagnosed hypochondriac, I'm just really imagining my own demise daily. Hourly sometimes, depending on sort of, you know, how bad my stress is that day. And I've told you my biggest fear. I mean, you know this. It's dying in the shower. God forbid that happens. 
Just light the house on fire. Don't call the cops. Listen, just as, you know, as somebody who's in ministry, I want to make sure you, I want to qualify this. I'm not afraid to be dead, all right? I understand that when I take my last breath, I will immediately be in the presence of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I am, however, concerned about that last breath and what that's going to look like. My, my grandfather, who was a pastor for over 50 years, actually, he would say this. He would say, you know, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die, right? Isn't that true? We all want to go there. So many of us fear death. And the truth is the fear of death robs us from the joy of living. Jesus is saying, look, happy are those people who, when faced with the reality of death, are willing to embrace it. They will find comfort far more than those who run from it and pretend like it's not a reality for them. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he's a German pastor, since passed away, very interesting guy. He was actually involved in the plot to take down Hitler. He said something incredible about death, and I always use it when I do funerals. He said this, why are we so afraid when we think about death? Death is only dreadful for those who live in dread and fear of it. Death is not wild and terrible. If only we can be still and hold fast to God's word. Death is not bitter if we have not become bitter ourselves. And I love this. Death is grace. The greatest gift of grace that God gives to people who believe in him. Happy people understand that there is more to life than just this life. This next one is my favorite. Blessed are, happy are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. I like this one because it's so misunderstood. Because so often we kind of read this and we see meek and our mind just thinks weak. Meek and weak, they sound the same. You've heard the, you know, the kind of the song lyric, meek and mild. And we think Jesus, what he's saying here is that, you know, he's going to turn the tables on the world. That all the weak people one day are going to be in charge. And that might happen, I don't really know. That's not what he's talking about here. That is not meekness. So this word meek in the original Greek is this word praus, and I've been pronouncing it as though it's a German word, praus, okay? Probably not how you say it, but I like that. And so when you look up the word praus in the dictionary, the, 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 the description it gives you is a powerful personality properly controlled. That was definitely written by a Southern Baptist. I love the alliteration they've got there. I mean, it's great. And I agree with the definition. I mean, they are correct here, but I'm just not sure this helps us fully understand what, what meekness really looks like in our lives. So I'm going to give you the John Garippa sort of New Jersey Italian version because I think that's going to help you really begin to apply meekness to your life. So here's really what, what meekness means. Meekness is having the ability to destroy someone and choosing not to. That when you're faced with a situation where you have been wronged, insulted, challenged, where you have the ability to decimate that person physically, verbally, academically, emotionally, psychologically, you grab an illy and you put it in there, where you are filled with rage and anger, and don't miss this, your feelings are justified, and yet you choose to do nothing. Instead, and this is the most important component of meekness, instead, you trust God to handle it. That is being meek. Happy people are those who recognize that righting wrongs, that's God's job. Happy people understand that God is working for them, that God will vindicate them 
when others oppose them. I just want to make sure we don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. He is not saying happy are those who are doormats. This is not what meekness is. He's saying those individuals who can control their emotions, who do not get thrown into a frenzy, ultimately those who can wait on God to handle it, are happy people. And I think that makes a whole lot of sense. He continues. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. In other words, those who are committed to just doing the right thing are happy. As adults, I just feel like we forget the freeing feeling of just doing the right thing. You know, when you're a kid, you, you really do live in a world of black and white, right and wrong, and as adults, that world gets a little grayer, and right and wrong get a little harder to define. And Jesus is saying, look, I, I get all that. I'm just, I'm just telling you, if you want to be happy, you need to make a commitment to just doing the right thing. Because when you do the right thing, you have no guilt, you have no regret, and your conscience is clear. And isn't it true? Come on. When you think about the biggest regret in your life, I'm talking about that season of life that you wish you could forget, that thing that you always seem to be dragging with you. Whenever you look in the rearview mirror, it is there. Isn't it true that that biggest regret in your life didn't come from doing the right thing? It came from doing the wrong thing. I mean, isn't it true that biggest regret, whatever it is for you, is when you knew what was right and you knew what was wrong and you chose wrong. To kind of tap into last week, you may have chose perhaps momentary pleasure and you undermined your own happiness. Jesus is saying those who hunger and thirst to just do the right thing, they're happy people. He continues, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. So what is mercy? Let's kind of get a working definition of what mercy is. Mercy is not getting that which you deserve, right? Not getting that which you deserve. So for example, you break the law. I don't know what you do. Maybe you take your car and you run it headlong into Chick-fil-A traffic because it's a crime against humanity that they're all on a federal highway like that, right? I want to do that every day. <coughs> So you get hauled into court, go before the judge. And now you know the punishment. You know, you effectively know what's going to happen to you. And what do you say to the judge? Judge, have mercy on me. Don't give me that which I deserve. Now, in this context, Jesus is challenging us to live in a way where we extend to others exactly what they don't deserve. Jesus is saying when you begin to extend mercy to the people around you, particularly especially, specifically, those who don't deserve it, peace will enter your life, and you will be happy. Now, that sounds reasonable. You go, yeah, that sounds great. I love that. Let's make it personal for a second. Just for a moment, not for a long time, just for a moment, I want you to think about that person in your life. And you know exactly who I'm talking about. That chief offender who just, when you see their name, when you see their face, like your blood pressure is just going to blow your eyes out of the sockets. Now, I don't know who it is for you. Maybe it's an ex-wife. Maybe it's an ex-husband. Maybe you're the person. Maybe, but like you could be like a sibling, but they just, ooh, they make me miserable. 
Now, just for a moment, imagine that Jesus was serious. Then imagine that we actually listened to Jesus and we offered that person mercy. I mean, imagine if you actually forgave them. John, come on. You got to be kidding me, right? You're a nice guy. You don't know what they've done to me. They don't deserve it. Precisely. That's what mercy is. I think Jesus is looking at these relationships that we're struggling with, and he goes, guys, do you want to live in that situation any longer than you have to? That tension, that anger, that bitterness, that rage, it's killing you. Jesus offers you a way out. It's not a quick fix. It's not going to get better overnight. And it's going to feel counterintuitive because it is. But if you can extend to that person mercy in the same way that your heavenly father extended mercy to you, you will be happy. You will be blessed. Jesus goes on. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they will see God. And I love that. I can almost see like Jesus up on the, on the mount going, you guys want to see God? And they go, yeah, I'd love to see that. That'd be great. I mean, I mean, I mean like, do you want to see the blessings of God in your life? Do you want to see the activity of God in your life? Yes, definitely, Jesus, more than anything. Then be pure of heart. What Jesus is doing right here is he's giving every single one of us a call to ethical and moral purity. Something that is completely pushed aside in our culture, something that is laughed at, something that is thought to be archaic, maybe even suppressive. And if we're honest, let me just talk to the Christians in the room. Come on. Even when we hear the word purity, it sends a shiver down our spine. Ugh. Because in our mind, purity equals missing out. Doesn't it? We look at culture, we see everybody else doing whatever they want, and they're doing all these things that Scripture says we shouldn't do, can't do, must not do. And in our minds, we think purity is getting in the way of my happiness. Purity is causing me to miss out. Jesus goes, no, no. If you would just purify your heart, if you would just obey my commands, if you would just remain pure in the areas in your life that I've asked you to remain pure in, then you will see God. You will see his blessings in your life. You will see the activity of God in your life, and you will be happy. He continues. Blessed are, happy are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. If we're honest, I think we all agree that conflict, not peace, conflict reigns supreme in this country. Politics have, have devolved into hatred. News outlets, at least in my opinion, seem to only exist to rile us up and divide us. Reality television, which I enjoy, is nothing more than people yelling at each other. And unfortunately, I think that is sort of permeated into our private lives. I think it is translated into our homes. And Jesus right here is challenging us to live differently, to be peacemakers. Don't peddle conflict. Don't promote conflict. See, what Jesus is saying here is he is not calling us to be peacekeepers, okay? See, a peacekeeper avoids conflict in order to keep the peace. 
Peacekeepers avoid issues. They work around issues rather than working through them. They will ignore the elephant in the room just to make sure family dinner is nice and peaceful. But a peacemaker? Well, they will embrace conflict in order to heal brokenness. Jesus would say, happy are the reconcilers. Happy are those who don't work around issues. They work on them. They work through them. A peacemaker will speak the truth in love. They will attack the issue, never the person. A peacemaker understands the importance of apologizing when they've done wrong. And most importantly, they will forgive and let it go. The Bible, cover to cover, is one long story of God trying to make peace with us. And when we try to make peace with other people, we are acting like our Heavenly Father. We will be called children of God. Blessed. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Wow. Because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is a hard one. The New Testament paints this picture that in this life we will suffer. In this life we will suffer either for doing the right thing or for doing the wrong thing, but you can only be happy on one side of that equation. Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, said it like this. What credit do you deserve if you endure a beating for doing something wrong? But if you endure suffering for doing something good, God is pleased with you. Meaning, you can be happy when you suffer for doing the right thing because you will have peace with God. And you will have peace with yourself. But if you suffer for doing the wrong thing, you, you will have no peace. Jesus says it like this. I mean, happy, happy are those who choose to do the right thing even when it costs them. Because you may have lost that job because you decided the right thing. You stood up, you go, I'm not going to do this. This is not right. We can't do this. And you lost a job. You may have lost that friend group because you chose to do the right thing. There will be times in this life as Christians, if you're a Christian in this room, and I know many of you are, when we stand up for that which is right, when we choose purity, when we choose truth, and the world comes down on you for it. But Jesus says, even when that happens, you can lay your head down on your pillow at night because you did the right thing, and you can have peace. Dr. Santos, that Yale professor, she made an interesting admission about her wildly successful course. She said, although my class may change behavior in the short term, achieving long-term happiness is more elusive and may require more radical changes to our lives. When you look at the Beatitudes, I think this is effectively what Jesus is saying to us. Jesus would say, happiness is the result of you choosing to live differently. Happiness is the result of, of putting in the work to achieve a certain outcome. Because for as good a teacher as Jesus was, and he was the best teacher there ever was, his audience didn't leave after hearing this teaching and walk away happy. That's not how happiness works. Jesus would say, simply hearing my words, they're not going to make you happy. You got to do something with my words. You can't just nod your head. You can't just give them the old Christian moan of affirmation. Mmm, that was good. You actually have to apply my words to your life if you want to see changes in your life. And when you do, 
you will be happy. Not immediately, but ultimately. And that happiness will be deep and abiding. So what's the practical? What do you do with a message like this? Every single week we put this word in the screen. Just want to make sure you can leave on a Sunday and know exactly what to do with what you've heard. So the Beatitudes really are one gigantic practical. Jesus has provided for us the blueprint for happiness, the principles of happiness, the ultimate divine plan to be happy. And so I just want to lump them all together so you can see exactly what the creator of the universe has told us. Happy are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. You go down the list. These right here are what I'm going to call the seeds, if you will, of happiness. Jesus would say, if you plant these seeds, you will grow happiness. If you sow these seeds, you will reap happiness. So here's the big question for you. What kind of seeds have you been sowing in your life? I mean, do you look at this list and you look at your life and you kind of evaluate sort of the happiness that maybe you got, maybe you don't got? Do you look at this list and you go, yeah, no wonder I'm struggling in the happiness department. I have missed the mark entirely. Here's the good news. Jesus invites you to start fresh today. Today, you can decide to embrace meekness. You can decide to be merciful. You can decide to put away the drama and become a peacemaker. God, in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, in these eight tiny little blessed sayings, has opened up his playbook to happiness. He has handed it to you. The big question is, what will you do with what you've been shown? How will you choose to live differently? Let me pray for you. Dear Jesus, thank you for giving us these sayings. These world-changing, life-altering sayings that seem so simple and yet are so difficult for us to put into practice. I pray, God, today that you would convict our hearts if, if, if we're failing in a particular area, that you, would, that you would show us how we can live differently, how we can begin to embrace your truths, put them into practice so that we can reap happiness. Lord, I'm just, in this moment, I'm just, I'm just thinking about this prayer project and I just, I just know right now that there are people in this room who have been hesitant to express their prayers. And I don't know who you are or what's that, what that prayer is right now. But in the presence of everyone in this room and in God's spirit, I just want to pray for you, Lord, that you would work in that person's life. That they would feel your presence. That they would see miracles. And Lord, when it's finished, we can give you all the glory. We ask all this in Jesus' name.